And if you would have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 9, the passage that Kenny just read. We're in a series on discipleship because we're reading through the book of Mark and Mark has shifted his focus. You might remember that the first eight chapters were primarily focused in on Jesus's identity. And this all reached its climax in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Remember, they, they t- he took them up to this place where there are all kinds of gods on the same stage. And, and he put himself very humbly on this stage and he asked the disciples, what are the people saying about who I am? And then he asked very pointedly to the disciples, now who do you say that I am? We, we've been together this couple of years probably at this point. You've seen all kinds of things. I, I've tried to say it to you over and over, but do you get it? Do you see me? Do you see my identity? And Peter, in this extraordinarily monumental statement, says, you are the Christ. It's, it's like the light comes on for Peter. It's like he's been staring at a puzzle and then suddenly, yes, I, I, I get it. It's like a blind man who can see that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3. He is the prophet like unto Moses in Deuteronomy 18. He is the king from the line of David, Isaiah 9. He is the messenger of the new covenant, Malachi 3. Jesus is the Christ. He's not just someone. He is the one. He is the one that all of history has been pointing to. And he has come and Peter sees it. Now, we noted and you could look back in Mark chapter eight, verse thirty four. As soon as Peter gets the right words, as soon as the words are out of his mouth, then Jesus says, great. Now get the right way. Let's go in the right direction. Remember, it's not enough just to have the right words. Lots of people can have the right words. We look back in the first few chapters of Mark chapter 8, and who were who the people or the things that were getting the right words down? The demons, before they were coming out of the person, they were saying, you are the Christ. So it's not hard to get the right words out, but it's terribly difficult to go in the right direction. And Jesus doesn't want Peter to miss it. So you might say in chapter 8, verse 34, he gives a summary of directions for discipleship. He's, he's now in these next couple, couple of chapters going to be pointing people or his disciples specifically in the direction of discipleship. And this is the summary. Mark eight thirty four. If anyone would come after me, if anybody wants to be a disciple, you've got to say the right things, but you must also go in the right way. And the way is he must deny himself, take up his cross And follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, these were not the directions the disciples had expected. You remember just on the heels of just after that, what was the big argument amongst the disciples who was going to be the greatest? They were hoping they were going to come into some kind of power. And so the directions were. Um, really in the opposite directions of the disciples' thoughts. 
But Jesus right here is separating admirers from disciples. With this statement, He's beginning to separate admirers from disciples. Jesus is not looking for admirers. He's looking for disciples. And the disciples are the people who are going to radically be transformed and live their life in a totally different direction than they had been going before. Followers are people who live their lives or lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. They've changed. The center of gravity has changed for a disciple. Now the center of gravity is not yourself, is not something else. It's, it's Christ. And everything about your life now centers around that. And you're willing to live or lose your life for that sake. And so the question the disciples had at this point is the same question that we have, and it's the question that Mark is answering, and that is, well, what are some specifics about discipleship? What would it really look like sort of at the ground level to live and to be a disciple of Christ? We talked about the first one in Mark 9.14. Discipleship requires walking through dark places. Jesus, as your leader, is purposefully leading you and I into dark places. And then through dark places. Secondly, Mark 9.33, discipleship requires a full throttle pursuit of greatness. Discipleship requires you and I to just full throttle pursuit of greatness, but by divine definition. Not by the worldly definition. The divine definition means you're going to be a servant of all. You've come to be a disciple means you're going to be last in this world and willing to serve everyone. And then today, the passage we're looking at specifically, 942, discipleship demands severing ourselves from sin. Most of you remember the story of Aaron Ralston. Remember this? If you don't remember the name, you remember the story. He's hiking in a canyon in Utah. And he was by himself. Uh, an approximately thousand pound boulder slipped and pinned his arm against the side of a crevice that he was down in. So he's stuck now. He's got his arm wedged in between this thousand pound boulder and the side of this crevice. He's in a three foot wide crevice. And he's screaming for five days for help. Five days. And he runs out of water at the end of the five days. He's running out of, obviously, hope that anybody would find him. And if you heard the story, this is the part of the story you remember. He decided at that point he was going to have to cut off his own arm if he wanted to live. So he took out a pocket knife. And just below his elbow, he cut off his own arm. And then he walked out of the canyon. He walked away from the thing that if he hadn't cut it off, he would have died. And then he met with some reporters and people who brought him from that point to the hospital. And he said this, I realized at some moment that I was going to die if I didn't take drastic action. That's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. 
He's talking about it to me and he's talking about it to you. You and I, as disciples, as believers, that's who Jesus is addressing here. We've got part of our lives pinned up in sin in some way. And we are going to die if we stay there. And in order to move away physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, it's going to take some drastic action on your part and my part. And it might look like severing your arm, your foot, or tearing out your eye. Isn't that what the passage is indicating right here? Now, we realize that Jesus is using a metaphor. He doesn't... He doesn't really want us to sever off our arm, but he doesn't qualify that right here. He just wants the disciples to feel the weight of that, that you and I are going to be pinned down. And what does he say in the text? If you're getting pinned down, sever or amputate your your arm or hand. Tear out your eye. And then in a discussion that I just want to say for next week, what's the motivation for that? You don't want to go to hell. I want you to hear this because in our society, in our context, we just don't really have a good capacity for hell. And so I just want to talk about hell next week and what Jesus was thinking about hell at this point. But at least we can say it's some place in Jesus' description that has an unquenchable fire. It's a place where the worm doesn't die. And he's saying, if you don't cut yourself off from these things, that's where you're going to end up. He's telling that to the people who are following after him. So if we're going to be disciples, and not just admirers, if we're going to walk in the right direction and not just have the right words, then we're going to have to, every one of us, in some way or another, sever ourselves from our sin. The two things I want to look at today specifically are the two things that are addressed here in this passage. Where does Jesus say the problem lies? Secondly, what does Jesus say regarding severing ourselves from the problem of sin? Where where is the problem? I mean, if you've got a problem underneath the hood of your car, you look up underneath the hood of your car and you try to locate the problem. So that's what Jesus wants to do is first locate the problem. And secondly, he doesn't cover everything that you would do, but he does give you some starting points on how to sever yourselves from the problem. First of all, let's read verse 43 through four, verse 47. And you see if you can pick up where the problem is. And if your hand, little clue there, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter the life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eyes cause you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. So where's the problem? Where does the problem lie? It lies in you. It lies in me. 
Chris Lungard writes a book called The Enemy Within. And that's what he's that's the premise of the book. The enemy is within. Paul says this in a pretty famous passage in Romans seven. And this is something I think all of us can identify with. Paul, the great apostle, says this. I do not understand what I do. See if this applies to you. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do. But what I hate to do. I have that desire to do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out for what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, the evil I do. I keep on doing this. So I find this law at work in me. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Chris Lungard has this image. Um, The image of a haunted house. You you meet Christ. you, You give your life to Christ. You trust in Christ. And you think in the beginning... This ought to be easy. I mean, this ought to be simple enough. It's just it's just Christ and me. We're just kind of moving forward. And what do you discover a half a step in? My house is still haunted. It's not just me and Christ. It's a lot of these haunted things that are still surfing around in my life. And I have this sin, this indwelling sin that it, it pops out of the closet like a skeleton sometimes. Have you ever felt that way? You're going along and you, you feel like you're perfectly moving with Christ. And out of nowhere, boom, out of the closet comes some sin. And it feels like it pins you to the ground. It totally occupies your mind. You can't get away from it. That's what Paul is saying. I want to do good and I find this law at work in me. Evil is right there saying, no, go over here. And it looks comfortable, but it pins you to the ground. And if you don't sever yourself from that, what Christ is saying is you're going to stay there and you're going to die there. The diagnosis for us is difficult. It's difficult for the disciples. But Jesus wants to make sure that we understand where the problem lies. Because if we really believe that our problems are outside of us, we're going to look at everybody else as the problem. If my wife, if my kids, if my job, if my paycheck, if my... And you fill in for yourself. If those things would just straighten up, everything would be okay for me. And Jesus is saying, no, everything wouldn't be okay for you. Because inside of you is a problem. Sin. It's pinning you against something And he wants to make sure that we take responsibility for it. I don't remember what exactly was broken in our home, but it's been several years ago. I was walking by the object. I don't remember if it's a vase or something. And it really was in one piece at one point. And I noticed it was now in several pieces. I have a good eye for the obvious in my house. And uh, so I began to do a little research how this one piece object now was in several pieces. And Morgan wasn't old enough to do much, so I knew she was exempt. I felt quite certain that since Nancy had bought it, she didn't want it in several pieces. 
I knew I hadn't done anything to it, so we just left with one person, Zachary. And so I say, Zachary, buddy, what happened? I don't know, Dad. I know I didn't do it. Then this is what he said. But I think my foot did it. (laughs) And Jesus is saying, you're responsible for your foot. You can't just say it was my hand or my foot or my eye or my tongue. That's you. And he's trying to say, you take responsibility for that. Now, when we come to the table, we're going to see that Christ is taking responsibility for something we could never take responsibility for. But now with Christ in us, He's saying now, you have to take responsibility for your physical body. And you might need to sever some things off in order to follow after Me. So the diagnosis here, the location of the problem is within Now, severing sin, point number two, requires drastic action. I'm going to mention two. I'm actually going to do a series in the Lent season of 2007 from the book, The Enemy Within, and another book by John Owen called The Mortification of Sin. And we're going to be more specific in those few weeks about how to deal with sin in our lives and how to cut ourselves off from it. So we're just sort of skipping across a couple of pieces here that I think are mentioned in this text. And two things I want to mention. Severing sin requires a drastic action, which looks like immediate, non-negotiable action. If we're really going to tackle sin, when you first see it, it's, you, your, your, your action must be immediate. And must be non-negotiable. Paul, talking to the believers in the church at Rome, says this, You must put to death the misdeeds of the body. And he couldn't be any more clear. Christ couldn't be any more clear. You're going to have to cut off or tear out, or Paul uses the words, put to death. He writes to the church at Colossae, you must put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. It's interesting in the Greek, put to death. You know what that means? It means put to death. It doesn't mean negotiate. You don't look it up and say, oh, well, I can sort of work with it in some way. No, it means take out a sword and cut it off. And as soon as you see it, boom, it's gone. You ever play this game? Um, I used to play it a long time ago at Carowinds. And it was called, I don't know if it's still called the same, it's called whack-a-mole. You ever see these things? Five little circles, and you have this big hammer, and as soon as the little gopher or mole pops his head up, you try to beat it on the head. I love that game. It just it felt good about hitting something really hard like that. And it's like that when sin pops out of the closet. You have to immediately take out the hammer and go, pow! That's it. Not look at it and say, well, you know, it's pretty nice, cute, I can deal with it maybe, I'll work on it. No, immediate, non-negotiable. As soon as you see it, you have to sever it from yourself. John Owen says this, We are to lay our hands upon the throat of these things and not let go until they have stopped breathing. 
C.S. Lewis has such a, a vivid picture of this in the book, The Great Divorce. The, the people are coming from heaven into the sort of the beginning part of from hell into the beginning parts of heaven on this bus ride. And they come out of the bus and they look like ghosts and they meet a guide, somebody that they've known in their other life. And the guide is taking them to heaven. And this is one of the pictures here of this ghost meeting the guide and the ghost has a lizard on his shoulder. And the lizard is constantly whispering to the ghost what he should do. And it's Lewis's picture of this indwelling sin that this man cannot get rid of. I want you to listen to the conversation. The ghost says to the guide, Oh, thanks for your hospitality, but it's no good. I told this little chap, the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing, but he won't shut up. Would you like me to make him quiet? Said the guide. Of course I would. Then I will kill him. And the guide taking a step forward, the ghost says, Oh, ah, look out. You're burning me. Keep away. Don't you want me to kill it? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way. Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it. But it's a new point, isn't it? I was only thinking about silencing it. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There's no time. May I kill it? Really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep on its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use of all at all, says the guy. I'd like to let you kill it now, but I'm not feeling well today. It'd be silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for such an operation. The guide moving closer. The ghost says, get back. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It's not so. I never said it wouldn't hurt. I just said that I wouldn't kill you. I know it will kill me, said the ghost. It won't. But supposing it did, if I cut it off. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Go on, can't you? Get it over. God help me. The next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile. You have to read the rest of the story to find out what happens. But do you see that? Do you, do you hear yourself in the negotiation process? Oh, the sin's gone to sleep. I'm sure I can take care of it later. It's just not that big of a deal. Let's consider it. And Jesus is saying, there's no consideration. It's immediate non-negotiation with sin. And so my question here isn't whether you're battling sin. That is not my question. I'm assuming, since Jesus is talking to His disciples, Paul is talking to the believers in Rome and Colossae, that if I'm talking to you, probably you're a lot like these people. So my assumption, my assumption is, I think safely, that you're dealing with sin. My question is, are you negotiating with sin? Have you been fooled into thinking that there might be a better time to deal with it? Really, do you believe it needs drastic action? 
I mean, are you kind of sitting there saying, come on. I mean, I'm not going to die from it. Secondly, drastic action requires physical movement. Notice that all the metaphors Jesus uses, hand, a foot, an eye, they're all physical pieces. So just as you want to get into better shape physically by moving your body, if you're going to be a disciple, you're going to have to move your physical body as well in order to get into good shape. It's not this. If you want to be a disciple, it's not this in this passage. It's not waiting for an extraordinary experience. It's not waiting for a miracle. It's not letting go and letting God. You, you, you hear all those phrases? They're, they're sort of an apathetic response. I'm just praying that somehow out there it's going to get taken care of. And Jesus is saying, I can tell you how to take care of it. Cut it off. Tear it out. He's physically saying, you've got to do something about this situation. Don't just wait around for me thinking, God, just help me, and then He's going to do something. You have to physically make movements in your life to cut off sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, I do not know of a single Scripture, and I speak advisedly here, which tells me to take my sin the particular thing that's getting me down to God in prayer and ask him to deliver me from it and then trust in faith that he will. Now, that teaching is all is also often put like this. You must say to a man who is constantly defeated by a particular sin, I think your only hope is to take it to Christ and Christ will take it from you. But what does the scripture say in Ephesians 4:28 to the man who finds himself constantly guilty of stealing? What am I to tell such a man? Am I to say, take that sin to Christ and ask him to deliver you? No. What the Apostle Paul tells him is, let him that stole steal no more. That's it. Stop doing it. And if adultery or lustful thoughts again, stop doing it, says Paul. He doesn't say, go and pray to Christ to deliver you. No, you stop doing that. Physically move in a different direction. Now, look, I I think that's a... I'm sure Lloyd-Jones had more to say on that. That's a simplistic answer. But all I'm trying to say right here is that it's going to cause you to physically move or look in different directions if you're going to be a disciple with Christ. So, my question is, what are you watching? What are you putting in front of your eyes as far as movies and television, magazines? What are you touching? Do you have your hand on someone or something that you know you should not have your hand on? Where, 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 where is your feet taking you? Is it going in places and in directions that you know you shouldn't go? Then you need to turn your eye away. You need to tear your hand off of that thing, whatever the cost. I think it's important for us to remember, and this is a, there's a lot to say here, 
So Christ is just giving us a few things. First, he wants us to see that the sin, the enemy is within. To not constantly look out and say, my problems are always outside of me. He's telling this to the disciples. And he's, he's beginning to tell them how to address some of these things. You have to recognize it and immediately deal with it. It's non-negotiable. Secondly, you're going to have to physically move yourself in different directions. And that may cost you your family. That may cost you your job. That may cost you your money. It may cost you a lot of things. But physically, you have to get up and go in a different direction. But I think it's important for all of us as believers to realize where Jesus is going in the midst of this conversation. In Mark chapter 8, he turns his face towards the cross. Because what he realizes, what he knows is that me and you are pinned up against a boulder that we couldn't possibly move. And in reality, we wouldn't even want to move it. There's sin that has to be dealt with by somebody who has the power to move a tremendous stone that we could never move. And that power only resides in one person, Jesus Christ. So when He comes to the cross and He's crying out in Mark chapter 14, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening in that relationship? He's being ripped apart from His relationship with God. All of our sin is poured out on Him so that His righteousness might be poured out on us. That's something that we cannot do. And a tremendous hope for all of us when we think about death. Only one person in human history has been strong enough to move the stone. That's Jesus Christ. So if you're a believer here today, you've committed. You're not an admirer. This is not a table for admirers. It's a table for disciples. You're saying, I've committed my life to Christ. I'm not perfect. But I'm not just saying the right words. I'm walking in the right direction. You're saying that as you come forward. I've trusted in Christ to move a stone that I cannot move. But as you take communion, you walk back. We're doing this as a community. People are looking at you. They're looking at you. And if you come forward, what you're saying when you walk back is, I'm going to give my best by God's grace to cut off the sin in my life. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to this table. None of us can walk up here by ourselves. You, by your power, have moved the stone of death and sin. But now, you living in us, 
It's not something that we just hope for in the future. We begin to work on right now. We are, we're working out our salvation. And part of that is taking responsibility for ourselves and our actions. Identifying sin. Cutting it off. And possibly limping and swerving towards the finish line. But we are keeping our eyes on Christ. Just the night before Jesus was betrayed, he's looking at these same disciples who he's talked to. And he's maybe remembering the conversation. And he's helping them understand in a different way what it means to be to be cut off. As he takes the bread and he says, this is my body. And what it means to be cleansed from all unrighteousness simply means that the blood of Christ has covered your sin. You come forward and do this in remembrance of those things. I'll ask the elders to come and when your heart is prepared, you come forward.